Amen. Well, if you would, be turning in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. And uh, I know I was out last week, but it seems like, in fact, it definitely was like more than a month ago that we got to go through Isaiah. And so just in the way of review, chapter 42, 41 and 42, we've been looking at God's progression of his servants. And the first one we looked at was Cyrus. Though he wasn't called by name, and he also wasn't called a servant, he served God's purposes. And then following Cyrus was um, God's servant Israel, the entire nation of Israel. And then the last thing we covered was God's servant Messiah, and that was at the beginning of chapter 42. And just kind of to put it in perspective, um, most of this chapter is focused on Messiah. But Isaiah toggles between God's servant Messiah and God's servant Israel. And at times, yeah, as I'm reading along, I'm like, okay, which one am I talking about here? Because it just kind of switches, and I'm not always you know, quick enough to, to pick up on that. But we're going to be picking up in verse 10 in just a moment. And our focus is going to be on God's working through Messiah, his servant. And in the first 10 verses, or first 9 verses, God has introduced Messiah, and he's validated him by his own creation. And you find this in verse 5. God has validated that Messiah is his servant, and he does it by highlighting his creation. He also is establishing a covenant through his servant. And if you think about it, we worship Jesus, our Messiah, our Redeemer. And part of the reason that we do that is because God has made a covenant with us. He's made a promise to us that if we believe on Jesus, that we'll have eternal life. And so there's a covenant there. In fact, many talk about the Old Testament and the covenants in the Old Testament. But the New Testament is a new covenant that was established by Jesus dying on the cross and shedding his blood for our sin. And then he also mentions this servant will remove darkness. It's a spiritual darkness that he is removing. Um, throughout the years, mankind has rebelled against God and in doing so has put himself in spiritual darkness. And Messiah is going to remove that and especially for Israel. And then God will not share his glory with idols. When we rebel and refuse to follow after God, there's only one alternative, and that's to pursue idols. And there's idols of the heart, but specifically mentioned in these passages, he talks about graven images and molten um, images that have been made out of metal. Uh, but behind that, People are thinking that that idol provides them something, whether it's power or whether it's prosperity or whatever it may be, pleasure. 
And so God's not going to share His glory and Messiah won't share His glory with these idols. And then last, only God can reveal new things. Part of what we saw in these chapters, chapter 41 and 42, and at first it kind of puzzled me, was God's going along, He's talking about His servant, and then all of a sudden He starts talking about idol worshipers. And the reason is, is we either worship God or we worship idols. There's no middle ground. And he highlights the fact that all too often we as people are too good at creating idols of the heart and idols that we pursue after instead of pursuing after God. These idols, though, are nothing. And one of the things that he did in chapter 41 was he challenged them almost like a courtroom challenge to prove that they were real and to do it by telling what would happen in the future. And only God can tell the future. Uh, part of his introducing Cyrus was Cyrus isn't on the scene yet, but this was going to happen in the future. So that brings us to chapter 42, verse 10. Isaiah has been going through this progression of servants Cyrus, then Israel, then Messiah. And there's this abrupt change. So let's read verses 10 through 17. It says, Sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise from the end of the earth. Ye that go down to the sea, and all that is therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof, let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar doth inhabit. Let the inhabitants of the rock sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory unto the Lord and declare his praises in the islands. The Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. I have long time holding my peace. I have still and refrained myself. Now I will cry like a travailing woman. I will destroy and devour at once. I will make waste the mountains and hills and dry up their herbs. And I will make the rivers islands and I will dry up the pools. I will bring the blind by way, the way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. You notice it's not as easy to see since we didn't read the preceding verses. But notice all of a sudden Isaiah is saying, Sing unto the Lord a new song. Why do you think there's such an abrupt change? He had been talking about Messiah. Why all of a sudden does he change focus? Because God's getting tired of them worshiping their idols Okay, definitely God is tired of the idols. I mean, Linda's right about some of the things that she's commenting there. 
But he's saying, sing unto the Lord a new song. So the focus is on the Lord. Why do you think he's bursting out in song, though? Okay, the focus isn't on the past, but it's on the future. And what has he been talking about? Say that again. Becoming a new creature. There's some of that in there, definitely. But who's going to bring that about? Messiah. Messiah. Think about it for a minute. Isaiah is being given new revelation. And I don't know at what point he recognizes that the person he's talking about, the servant of the Lord, is Messiah. But every Jew is looking for Messiah. They have this promise of Messiah. And so every person is focused on that. And Isaiah has now been given new revelation about Messiah. I can't see any difference between that and Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. At some point, creation, and in particular, we as people, need to glorify God. And so I think this abrupt change comes about as he's realizing he's sharing about Messiah. And he's basically saying, we need to sing. We need to sing a new song. Now, I thought it was kind of interesting, you know, that it's a new song. It's not an old song. Um, we aren't given any hint as to what it's going to sound like. In this passage, we also aren't given any hint as to what the words are. Anyone think of another passage that talks about a new song? This is your Bible trivia test for the, today. Where are you at? You don't have to give chapter and verse, but you can. In Isaiah? Well, I'll give you a hint. There are nine times in the Bible where the word new song or the phrase new song is used. Okay, there's only one in Isaiah. Psalms mentions it five or six times. And there's one other place where it's mentioned two times. Revelation. And if you remember right, the new song has to do with worthy is the lamb. And it gives us the words in that particular passage. And so in Revelation, there's two times. In Psalms, it's six times. And here, this one time in Isaiah. And so we have this new song. And all of the people of the earth are encouraged to sing this new song. Uh, we aren't going to go through each of the places, but he mentions the isles, he mentions the inhabitants of the rock, you know, the mountains, 
And so he's basically talking about the people from the ends of the earth. It's a new song. And the focus of that song, though we aren't given the words, is to give glory unto God. And so Isaiah has this abrupt change. And at least to me, it was abrupt. And I think it was the natural heart's desire to worship our Creator. And so he's encouraging the earth to worship Messiah and the Creator that sent Messiah. In verse 13, he gets back to what Messiah, the servant of God, is going to do. He starts out and he says, The Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. This passage kind of caught my attention. It's kind of one of those phrases that gets me thinking, okay, what's that like? What does a man of war typically do when he's going to war? Kill the enemy. Capture or kill the enemy, one of the two, okay. Exactly. Is there any just kind of, well, let's relax and watch the football game first? There might be some of that. <laughs> In modern days, there probably is, but I want you to think back to the time of David. What was a man of war like back then? They had to prepare. Okay. Anything else? And they do today also, but it's a different type of preparation. Physically fit. Okay, the difference back then, you know, and it got me thinking about this, the difference back then was this was hand-to-hand -hand combat. It was with a sword or a spear or with a shield. Um, it wasn't with rifles. And part of the reason that that got me thinking about is it mentions the battle cry. The man of war, and then he has a battle cry. Most of the images that come to my mind are probably things I've seen on TV, either on the news, or if I watch a particular show that has you know, armed forces in it. And what are they like today? It's more stealth. It's quiet. There's no battle cry, but rather they're going in a lot of times at night with night vision. And they have their rifles up and they have usually silencers on them and they see the enemy and they pull the trigger. There's no battle cry. <clears throat> And the snipers from even longer distances away. But this was hand-to-hand -hand combat in this day. So when Isaiah brings up this warrior and this battle cry, they could relate to it. Um, about the closest thing that I could come up with to relate to this was maybe some of the old Western movies where the Indian would attack the cowboy and what did the Indian do when he would attack? Yeah, he would let out a blood-curling scream, and that was to surprise the enemy. And so 
Our image when we read Isaiah here probably flashes to the things that I did, which was modern warfare, stealth, rifles. But in reality, it should flash to a time where it was hand-to-hand -hand combat, where there's a, a battle cry that's being done to surprise and to kind of disorient the enemy as you go into hand-to-hand -hand combat. Um, totally different image than what we get when we think about modern warfare. I think the point that Isaiah, though, is trying to make and what drives it home for his people at his time is they're used to what battle in that time was like. And he's basically saying when God chooses to act, which is what he's talking about here, the Lord will go forth as a mighty man, as a warrior, and he'll have a battle cry. God isn't just sitting around waiting. He has a plan, and he's always on time. He's never late, and he's never early. But when he acts, it's going to be decisive. It's going to be business. You know, he's going to make things happen. It says he shall cry. This is in verse 13. And he'll prevail over his enemies. And so God's going to act. But not only is that action going to happen, it's not going to be a question of who's going to win. There is one clear answer to the outcome, and that is God's going to be the one that prevails. Now, I thought it was kind of interesting. Isaiah's description there is very businesslike. When God says it's time, he's going to move through and he's going to prevail. It then talks about God's patience in the next verse. He says, a long time I've holden my peace. Causes me to remember the passage in the New Testament that says God is not slack concerning his promise. And the reason that he is holding off is he's holding off judgment. He's giving, he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And so this same idea is being communicated here in Isaiah. God has been holding back. It's not that he's been like us watching TV or doing anything else or sick on the couch or in bed. It's that he's waiting to give mankind a chance to repent. But when he acts, it's going to happen. He's been holding his peace. He's been refraining from moving in judgment. Now keep in mind, Isaiah is describing him in some ways judging his servant Israel because of their pursuing idols, which we had already talked about as well as their forsaking him. And he's given time and opportunity to come back to him, but they won't. And so at some point, he's going to take action. Devour at once. Devour at once. Okay, that's a little bit further in this. There was one other phrase that caught my attention. 
cry out like a, a birthing woman. Yeah, Greg? I'm just uh, wondering about uh, verse 13 where he said, it says, he shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. The whole, the whole portion of mine here that we've been studying in Mark, Jesus goes into the temple. That's what's bringing up in my mind. Yeah. And, and I think Greg is right. You know, the other thing that he's trying to do with his waiting is he's trying to get them to be jealous for him instead of jealous and pursuing after idols. I think that's a good point. I missed that word in, in the study that I was looking at. I was looking at the man of war, but yet the objective, which is a good one, and we can be grateful for that one, is he tries to stir up in us a desire to be jealous for him, and that's a good thing. The other thing, though, that I want to skip down to is this crying out like a birthing woman. Now, obviously, I don't have firsthand experience. I have never delivered a baby, will never deliver a baby. Uh, God didn't make me in that way. There's a lot of confusion out in our world nowadays about that. So I have no firsthand experience. And I really don't have secondhand experience. My wife, Brenda, who's in the back, she um, has delivered three of our, our, our three daughters. And I can honestly say that when she went into labor, she did not scream. Now, she was working hard. I mean, you know, there was a, a, a moist glistening on her face as she was going through labor, but she was the quiet type. She just kind of held it in and, and never cried out. I do have third-hand experience. When we were having, uh, well, when she was having labor for our second child, we were having our second child, we were in a labor room, and every so often in a room close by, there was a lady giving birth that would yell out. And uh, I remember that vividly because at some point I asked Brenda, is there anything you need? And she said, get someone to find that lady and put a sock in her mouth. <laughs> because she was focused on giving birth and that yelling from the other room. And so there is cases where some do yell because of the pain of it. Um, I've heard different ones describe it, and I've never had anything like that. But the idea here is there's an expectation, but there's a crying out until that expectation is realized. Uh, as a, a woman is going through labor, she's expecting there's going to be joy at the end of it. But while she's going through it, there's a crying out. And so the Lord, when he goes forth, he says, Now will I cry like a travailing woman. A woman. If you think about what Messiah accomplished, I'm sure there was a lot of pain and suffering when he went to the cross. But he knew on the other side of that, he would redeem mankind. And so there was an expectation that made him willing to do that. 
Isaiah didn't describe all those details, but as we consider what he says about Messiah and about God acting, we can relate to those because we have seen through the Gospels what God was seeking to accomplish to redeem mankind. From that, God's action, he starts to describe what he will do. And it caused me to flash back, and I'm going to flash a slide up here. Some of you will remember back when we were in Isaiah 14, probably several years ago, at the rate we go, and uh, Satan had some I wills. And in that passage, Satan had some things that he said he would do. What were those things? And you can read them right off the slide. He's going to ascend into heaven. What else? Okay, he's going to have, he believes, a throne that's above the uh, stars of God, which would be, in most people's view, the angels, the other angels. He's going to sit on the mount of the congregation, and a lot of that had to do with the covenant God made with David and how David's throne would be forever. He's going to ascend to the heights of the clouds, and he will be like the Most High. What do you see in all of these I wills from Satan? Okay, I, self, Pride, definitely. What did Pastor Aaron preach on in a recent recent Sunday night? Oh, wow. There's no hope for me. We'll have to do this lesson again next week. <laughs> I, I say it because I happen to remember, but I don't always remember. But he, he said, what does the Bible teach about Ambition. What you see in all of these is Satan's ambition. And Pastor Aaron pointed out there's two different Greek words. One's a negative one, and obviously this list falls into that category. And then there's a positive ambition. Um, but Satan's focus is pride and himself and ambition. Now let's contrast that with what does God say he will do? God has some I wills that are in this passage. I think Lee already gave us the first one. He's going to destroy and devour. And so when he comes, when Messiah comes, especially when we think about Christ's second coming, he's not coming the second time as a servant and humbly to be dying on a cross, but rather he's going to come as the victorious conqueror, and he will destroy suddenly. He'll just simply say the word, and the armies of the earth will be destroyed and devoured. And so some of this, in many ways, is talking about Messiah in the future, not Messiah and his first coming. What else is going to happen? 
Nancy? He is going to do away with the mountains and hills and drive all the plants and herbs. Okay, so mountains and hills are going to just basically disappear. He's going to make the rivers to be islands. And so the earth as we know it today is post-sin, post-flood. We see mountains and hills. We see deserts. We see places where there's floods. Whatever God's going to do, I think it's going to set this earth back into a pristine state very similar if not exactly like it was before sin and the flood and those things happened um, that's just my best understanding he's going to dry up the pools from there he starts to get a little more personal what else is he going to do as part of his I wills. Okay, he's going to lead Israel, only he calls them blind. He says, I'm going to bring the blind down an unknown path. Similar with Moses. This will be a second time, a second exodus. Okay, similar to Moses in some ways, yep. Um, if you think about this, first question I had was, who are the blind? And we've kind of answered that it's Israel. Do you have any passages that you could point to that would say, yeah, this is definitely Israel? Because we're switching, you know, this is one of those places where it's kind of switching from the focus on Messiah to what he's going to do concerning Israel. Paul spoke of it in the book of Romans about Israel. Okay, book of Romans Chapter 11, verses 7 and 8. Okay, and so Roberts mentioned that. It says, What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them a spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. Anyone know where that's written? I'll help you. Isaiah chapter 6. If you remember, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. And as he did, he says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And the angel touched his lips with uh, a coal off the altar and cleansed him. And then they said, Who shall go? And he said, I will go. And in his commissioning, this is what God said to him in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, he said, Go, tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and their eyes, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. And so Isaiah chapter 6 is the passage that Paul is quoting in the book of Romans. But there's one also a little closer in chapter 42, verse 19. It says, Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect, 
excuse me, as he that is perfect and blind as the Lord's servant. And so multiple passages tell us that this blind, this blindness that's going to be dealt with is Israel. Now, how many remember John Cunningham? Can I see your hand? Okay, about half of us. John Cunningham went to church here some number of years back, and you could always pick him out because he usually had on dark sunglasses, and he had a walking cane because he was dominantly blind. He could see shadows. But he was real good at hearing. He could tell who he was talking to just by their voice. Very few people could, could fool him when it came to that. But he was blind. Most of us have never experienced blindness. Um, the closest I came was cataracts, which are now fixed. So I have two bionic eyes, so I can see everyone now. Um, and that's been fairly recent, but I remember the frustration of not being able to see, or cl see clearly. I can only imagine the frustration of being blind. If any one of us were put to put on a blindfold and say, okay, walk from this podium to that back door back there, we would be trying to pace off how long, how many chairs, or how much distance we could go before we could turn. And we'd have a hard time with it. And so blindness is a spiritual condition also. I've described the physical blindness, but really what God is describing here is a spiritual blindness. Israel, his servant, is blind. Israel can't see through the eyes of faith the very God that has chosen them and made him made them his chosen people. And he says, I will make the blind, or I will bring the blind by a way they knew not. And so God's going to lead them, even though they're blind, he's going to lead them in a way they know not. Personally, my opinion of this passage is he's going to bring them to redemption and they have no clue about it. I think if you and I lived in the days of Jesus, we would see or not see blind as we would be. We would not see God's plan the way we see it today. We would basically be just as blind as they were because God's ways were revealed only after his son was crucified. Yes, sir. The picture of salvation. Uh, there's a picture of salvation in me. I mean, it's the same. Spiritually, we're blind and we're lost. You're saved and Lord opens your eyes and puts you in a new path. Exactly. It's a whole new path. We don't think about the need of salvation until God really opens our eyes. And if you remember the verse we started with, started the class with in Colossians, it said that the Father makes us qualified to be 
part of his kingdom, the kingdom of light of his dear son. That's what I see when I read this passage is that same thing that was just mentioned. And that is the way of salvation they have no clue about. I had no clue about until God opened my eyes to see it. Linda? Couldn't this also be tied to John chapter 6, verse 37, where Jesus says that all that the Father gives me, and he's referring to God's already chosen who Jesus is going to help. If, isn't that what he's doing here? I don't think he's trying to bring up the topic that you're looking at, which is foreknowledge. God knows everything that's going to happen, everything that has happened. Um, and he doesn't choose the same way that we think of choosing, but rather he extends mercy and invite to all, but he knows who will accept and who won't. Um, here, what I think he's focused on is the fact that we all start out blind, but especially his servant. He's chose Israel. Keep in mind, in the Old Testament, the, the primary focus is on Israel, not on the church. Okay, totally different focus, but it's through Israel that the church comes into existence because they are the one that basically Messiah is born into as far as that nation. So I don't think he's trying to teach the idea of foreknowledge here as much as he's trying to highlight the fact we all start blind, even his servant Israel, and he's going to lead them by a way that they don't know. They don't understand salvation they don't have a clue about it. They're thinking politically. They're thinking of having a king that's going to rule and reign. He says, also, I will lead them in paths they have not known. And so God is leading them in this unknown path. So they're blind. They don't know it. And God leads them through it. And if you think about it, isn't that how we get saved? We're walking along, and quite honestly, if we're truthful about it, we are totally clueless about the things of God. And we're going along thinking life is fine, and one day God gets our attention. And basically, what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, we all of a sudden realize We've sinned against a holy God. But all the time up until that, we were oblivious to it. And God opens our eyes to it. And then he also shares with us Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And so if we don't believe we're a sinner and come short of God's glory, all we got to do is realize we're mortal. We're going to die. And death and sin go hand in hand. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so it's God that brings us to this way. It's not that we were smart. We can look at one another and it doesn't matter how smart we are in this 
education of this world. The truth of the matter is, is we were blind just like everyone else until God opened our eyes to the truth. And so he's going to bring them down a path they don't know. He's going to make darkness to be light. As I thought about that one, couldn't help but think about cataracts. Cataracts just kind of made it where everything was more of a haze. You couldn't see clearly. It wasn't totally dark, but I've heard of people having cataracts where it's looking through, like looking through wax paper was what one man described it to me like. And I remember when they fixed the first eye, what a rejoicing there was because I could see clearly again. Um, and by the way, that brings up one other thing that I think is kind of amazing. I do not see how people can deny God and the wonder of his creation. When you think about you have two bad eyes, one gets fixed, and your brain can figure out how to make the best image out of the two things that you're seeing. That just boggles my mind how wonderfully made we are because God puts into us the ability for our body to compensate for what other parts of our body may be having problems. Here... He talks about making darkness light. And I think it's important that we recognize that though we can see physically, the question is, is can we see spiritually? And Isaiah is pointing this out to them that this servant that is blind is going to be able to see light. What else is he going to do for this servant? Okay, crooked things are going to become straight. I don't know about you, but typically when we have a sinful habit, it's not easy to break that habit because it's a habit. <coughs> when a nation becomes crooked, can you imagine how to clean up corruption of a nation? And by the way, you can look at any nation. Any nation that is not being governed by godly people is going to have corruption. It's just going to be the way man works. And so our country has been blessed. Its history was not every Christian or not every government office was filled with a Christian, but there was a strong Christian value system throughout our nation historically. If you're like me, you grieve to see the fact that we're forsaking God and we're seeing more and more people in government that are in it for only one thing, and that is how to line their pockets. And man is corrupt like that. Can you imagine what it would take to clean up any nation on this earth? 
that has not had a godly heritage. Even one with a godly heritage, once it forsakes God, it's, in my opinion, going to require revival where God changes it for it to be cleaned up. And that's, I think, what Isaiah is highlighting here. But if you think also about the fact Isaiah has been focused on God's judgment through some of this and what God's judgment would be, this next point, I think, is really, really important. He's not going to forsake them. Now think about it for a minute. We can have good friends, good family, but if one of our friends or family turn and forsakes God, what's our response to them? We tend to want to go the other way. We don't want to go down the same path they're going. God's looking at mankind with all his sinfulness and in particular Israel and he's basically saying I'm not going to forsake you I don't know about you but when I think about that to me that just shows God's amazing grace and mercy we all too often when someone gets in trouble keep our distance God doesn't and he says to them as he's talking about judgment and as they're going through this he says I'm going to straighten their ways I'm going to allow them to go down paths they don't know I'm going to remove the darkness so that they can see light but most of all they can know that I'm not going to forsake them and if I were in Israel's shoes back in the time of Isaiah with all of the political angst going on, it would be comforting to know that regardless of what all was going to happen, God's not going to forsake me. And so we're going to stop at that point because I'm looking at the time and it's, it's getting close to, to when we need to stop. And I think we ought to take heart from what Isaiah was telling Israel. They were his messenger. They were blind. We can relate to that. We're no different. We're made out of the same stuff. And the good news is God doesn't change. And God, just as he promised them that he wouldn't forsake them, when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we know that he won't forsake us. And that can be comforting when we go through difficult times in life, the valleys of life, knowing that God is there and that he's not going to forsake us is a comfort, and especially in the hard times. Well, let's close with a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you don't change. Your love for us sustains us and brings us through all sorts of things that we never dreamt of. 
But Father, most of all, we pray that you would help us not to wander, that we wouldn't forsake you, but rather we would glorify you. We pray during the service that follows that Christ would be exalted highly. We thank you for Isaiah and for the message that not only he gave to Israel, but we see through that your character and your actions toward us. Thank you for your love for us again. In Jesus' name, amen.